Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Barnaby Rain. We talked about the EHRC report into anti-Semitism and the Labour Party, the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn and what the affair tells us about the treatment of anti-Semitism in the UK in 2020. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books who have lots of titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is An Event Perhaps by Peter Salmon. Who is Jacques Derrida? For some, he's the originator of a relativist philosophy responsible for the contemporary crisis of truth. For the far right, he's one of the architects of cultural Marxism. To his academic critics, he reduced French philosophy to little more than an object of ridicule. For his fans, he's an intellectual rock star who ranged across literature, politics and linguistics. In his new biography, An Event Perhaps, Peter Salmon presents this misunderstood and misappropriated figure as a deeply humane and urgent thinker for our times. The book is out now from Verso Books and part of their October Book Club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Barnaby Rain is an intellectual historian writing his PhD at Columbia University. His doctoral research seeks to explain the decline of thinking about the end of capitalism from Marx through to debates in 20th century Britain amid the end of formal empire. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, N Plus One and numerous other venues. Before moving on to the main theme of today's discussion, I asked Barnaby to outline the research he's currently engaged in for his PhD. That's very kind of you to ask. Yeah, it's a, it's a slightly miserable experience to realise that everyone assumes that I must be spending my whole life writing and researching about anti-Semitism, when in fact I feel kind of pulled into talking about that whenever it becomes a miserable media issue. But my research is, I suppose, about something no less miserable, because I think that the most important question a historian can ask for the left is also the question that is least often, I think, well, well posed, which is the question of defeat, which is understanding why we lost the 20th century. There are accounts, there are some more optimistic accounts. Sherry Berman has a book, for example, that say, well, the left didn't really lose the 20th century, you know, unless you have a sort of universal history, necessary teleology that thinks that progress on women's rights and LGBT rights and the ending of colonisation, unless you think these things were predetermined, they were all serious victories that the left won, so that by the end of the 20th century, and we had also more serious welfare states at the end of the 20th century than at its beginning. I think, though, that it's striking that at the beginning of the 20th century, people across the left and the right and the liberal centre were much less optimistic about the survival of capitalism than they were at the end of the 20th century. That is to say, we lost the ability to think of capitalism as something finite and something that could be ended by a mixture of its own organic trajectory and, and human agency. And so where there's a new book by Francesco Bollizzoni with Harvard that sort of treats as weird the aspiration to end capitalism and asks how it was that so many people thought it so likely for so long that capitalism would be ended. I regard that question as itself speaking to the strangeness of our historical moment. And I ask the opposite question, that the weirdness is of our moment in which it no longer seems feasible to end capitalism, in which it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, as the cliche goes from Frederick Jameson or whoever it was who first said it. And so my PhD is an attempt to tell a story about how it became so hard to imagine the end of capitalism. And I focus on intellectuals in Britain and I give a very particular kind of answer to this question, but that's the broad question that interests me, that I think we on the left need to have much better, much keener answers to how, how we lost. And although I suppose initially the, the, the relevance won't be obviously apparent, this does relate to the position you take on the question of, of anti-Semitism in the current moment, right? 
Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, partly my interest is in the way people think. So my work is as an intellectual historian. So I don't approach the question of why the left lost as one could very reasonably approach it as a political economist or as a social historian or through any number of different approaches. But I'm interested in asking how it was that people could think the end of capitalism at one point and how under what under what material conditions of possibility it became harder to think the end of capitalism. And so similarly, I'm interested in under what kind of material conditions people come to think in particular ways when it comes to the question of anti-Semitism, and I regard anti-Semitism, I think this is probably what you're hinting at, as one miserable form of defeatist, supposedly anti-establishment thinking that takes hold in the wake of the desolation of the left. And so I regard writing and thinking about the rise of anti-Semitism as one chapter in a story uh, and a one particularly kind of brutal epilogue in a story about the decline of ambitions to end capitalism. That is, of course, wholly different from ways of thinking about anti-Semitism that posit it as a form of left wing thinking, which take its anti-establishment credentials really seriously, which I certainly don't do. Yeah, so I think I think we'll, we'll come back to that point. Just turning to today's topic. Firstly, could could you briefly outline your opinion of the report of the Equality and Human Rights Commission regarding antisemitism and and the Labour Party? And could you perhaps say something about the EHRC itself? So, yeah, I'm very interested in the EHRC as a body because I think it fits within a broader historical trajectory, which is the evidences, the transformation of anti-racist politics in Britain. So just as Margaret Thatcher championed a moral panic about gay people preying on kids and faced gay liberation politics that, at its most radical, sought the destruction of the heteronormative family form and therefore presented a fundamental challenge to the basic structure of of our patriarchal society. And just as Thatcher faced that down as its direct antagonist, whereas New Labour was able to champion an image of a cool Britannia that was supportive of gay rights by changing the gay liberation agenda to a gay rights agenda. This wasn't done by New Labour. It was a historical shift in which the agenda became not the destruction of the heteronormative family, but civil partnerships for gay people. What on earth does this have to do with anti-racism? Well, the same thing happened, I think, in relation to anti-racism. So a politics of black liberation that was heavily tied to an anti-colonial struggle globally and that sought to take apart a conception of Britain that was racist to its core was transformed by the 1990s into a language of multiculturalism that was much less challenging to state power. And the Equalities and Human Rights Commission as a state body to find and punish those marginal racists from our society pick out the bad apples from the healthy barrel is a perfect exemplar of the utter transformation of anti-racist politics from a fundamental challenge to state power and to capitalist society and to the legacies and the persistence of colonialism into a brand of state-led policing of marginal dissent. You know, the only political party the EHRC had investigated before the Labour Party was the BNP for its uh, all-white member policy. So treating racism as a kind of marginal feature of extremes of the political spectrum, be that the far right or the far left. So I think the EHRC as a concept tells you a lot about the way that anti-racism is now thought of in Britain. If you tune into any news broadcast and see discussions of anti-Semitism, you'll see the wise, the sane, the respectable, the mainstream politicians and journalists and commentators frowning and and shaking their heads at the idea of anti-Semitism or or any kind of bigotry as this bizarre property of a few extreme weirdos, rather than being a central structuring feature of British society, even after the dead of Grenfell and the dead in the Channel and the Muslim communities surveilled for their adherence to British values, all these facts which seem to suggest that racism runs like a current through the heart of our society. So the EHRC serves this role of a particular kind of liberal anti-racism. And then after 2010, 
when its funding was massively slashed by the Tories, it came even more to reflect that kind of state to be, you know, a kind of ideological state apparatus, as some might have it, in a very literal sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's really part of the state. And it came to reflect that even more strongly, where, you know, you have the Muslim Council of Britain asking three times for the EHRC to investigate Islamophobia in the Tory party, presenting a dossier with, I think, 300 cases. But the EHRC holds up its hands and says, no, we can't do this. You've got the only Muslim commissioner and a black commissioner resigning from the EHRC and saying it's not serious. But it is following, I think, an agenda of least resistance in investigating anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. I'm not one of those who concludes from that fact that there isn't any problem of anti-Semitism. But it's certainly, I think, the EHRC should be positioned within a broad trajectory of the transformation of anti-racism from a radical to a liberal project, which isn't to say there's no radical anti-racism left, but it's to say the EHRC represents a liberal wing. And also the EHRC should be positioned in recent years as a kind of dramatically weakened body with much less funding following a relatively convenient political agenda of least resistance. So that's how I read the HRC, which isn't to say that it doesn't do anything valuable or anything of use, but it is to express some scepticism about it as an organisation. Would it flow from that that you think members of the Labour Party and the Labour leadership even ought to have been more critical of the EHRC in and of itself, aside from the question of its, its findings in this report? I don't really expect many figures of the Labour leadership, even those associated with Corbyn, to be part of a revolutionary anti-racism dramatically distinct from the EHRC. I mean, on the reformist left, even, a kind of state-led regulatory anti-racism, which passes legislation to try to protect minorities, has often been the limits of the horizon. And in some sense, the HRC is the product of that. So, But I certainly would want anti-racist, and I think anti-racist militants from the tradition of black power in Britain and other kinds of radical traditions that seek to dismantle racism as a structure deep in British institutions and British class society. I think those people are quite organically likely to see their politics as not identical to the kind of project of the EHRC, which is a form of liberal um, anti-racism. That said, I also think that much of the discussion of this EHRC report did suggest, and perhaps I'm naive to be surprised by this, that people discussing it hadn't read the report. Because one of the striking things about the report is it was difficult for the authors of the report to echo a media discussion of Labour Party anti-Semitism that has at times been bizarre and inflated. So you have this funded, big, long effort to investigate the Labour Party. And at the end of it, you have just two cases mentioned of individuals where the EHRC is recommending legal action, both of whom were expelled under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership or left the party. One of them, Ken Livingston, we've heard about endlessly, and the other one, a single random councillor. You know, I don't, perhaps it's mean to call this person random, but not a high profile figure. I've been active on this issue for a while, never heard of this person. And it's also important, and hasn't really been discussed, that many of the most obviously disgraceful cases that the HRC found, a councillor, for example, raving about Rothschild power, were from before the governance and legal unit of the Labour Party was sort of taken over by more Corbynite forces, were from those earlier years where the right of the Labour Party had had control over its structures. So and this so is when before the report, 2018, right? Before 2018, exactly. And so when the report complains about that Rothschild raving councillor in 2016, no action was taken against them. If the Labour right now wants to crow that the report suggests that Corbynism fails to act against anti-Semitism, in fact, much of the awful stuff that is documented in this report happened before the Corbynites got hold of the Labour Party's internal apparatus. This might all sound like bureaucratic and boring stuff, but it's obviously uh, quite politically important. 
So I think it's, it's worth reading the reports, whatever you think about the EHRC as an organisation. It's not wise to do what the Board of Deputies of British Jews did, which is to release a big statement scathing about how the report condemned the Labour Party 15 minutes after a 100-page report came out. I don't think they had time to read it in that time. If you read it, I think it, uh, it does surprise some of the more condemnatory narrative about the Labour Party. Aside from the question of responsibility, whether we're talking about the Corbyn leadership itself or that earlier period where Labour HQ was, was led by people who were hostile and perhaps even actively seeking to undermine the Labour left. Aside from that, what's your view of the findings of the report? Well, there are two sides to this. So one is, as I say, it is striking that the report does not find in an organisation with hundreds of thousands of members, tens of thousands, say, of anti-Semites. They're dealing with 70 submissions. They find 18 borderline cases, they say, and just two cases where they suggest legal action should be taken. Now, to be clear, legally, they think that they can only take action in cases where people found to be anti-Semitic or who they believe might have been anti-Semitic or might have been harassing Jews. Interesting distinction I'll come on to. Could feasibly be seen as agents of the party, that is, they were elected officials. But they don't give us reams of ordinary members either who are anti-Semites. So one thing to say is that the report does not support a view that the Labour Party is utterly overrun with anti-Semitism. I think there is a real problem of anti-Semitism, including in the Labour Party. I'm not one of those who denies that. And I'll come on to that, I'm sure. But the report is a bit deflating if you thought that the Labour Party was effectively similar to the last political organisation the EHRC investigates, which is the BNP. Because if you went and did a survey of members of the BNP, you'd probably find more than two elected officials, when they had any elected officials at all, of that organisation who had you know, said harassing things about ethnic minorities. You know, so the idea that the Labour Party is equivalent to other fundamentally racist bodies, I think is challenged by the content of the report. That's one thing to say. On the other hand, I think there are deep problems with the report. So much of its complaint is about the idea that the leader's office interfered with the process of disciplining people for anti-Semitism. And this has now become a war cry that, you know, they, the leader's office shouldn't have done that and, and it's disgraceful. And it's amazing how short people's memories are because unsurprisingly, in the middle of the anti-Semitism scandal, there were many calls from Tom Watson, from the Board of Deputies of British Jews, calls for the leader's office to interfere in order to speed up cases against people like Ken Livingstone, which they did, who were accused of anti-Semitism. The irony now is that Keir Starmer, of course, wants to boast that he has disciplined Jeremy Corbyn, but knows that he has to be careful about boasting about that because this report has just slightly weirdly, I think, said that these decisions should be entirely regulatory and administrative and, and, and not have anything to do with political leadership. Here again, you might find a kind of liberal anti-racism, which thinks that anti-racism can be an entirely technocratic affair. And so you should have no political interference in it. I, I don't share that view at all. So that's one kind of problem. Another deep problem in the report is that evidence was submitted by the Jewish Labour movement and by the campaign against anti-Semitism against the Labour Party. And no case for the defence was provided because when Keir Starmer took over as leader, he refused to submit this 850 page report that was leaked that put the other side. And so the EHRC was slightly hamstrung in that they were dealing with a lot of information from the prosecution. And then Keir Starmer had taken an unsurprising political decision not to present the case for the defence. So that immediately makes the report, uh, you know, a slightly kind of lopsided endeavour. I would also raise some doubts, again, along these lines of this kind of regulatory liberal anti-racism, about the veneration of the idea of political independence that you see throughout the report, that Labour needs an independent complaints process. It's very unclear what that would mean in practice. The Labour Party has a matter of weeks now to design an independent process for rooting out anti-Semites. Who should run that? And when the Labour Party did do a training process on anti-Semitism with Birkbeck, involving some, I think, quite serious scholars and smart people providing this training, that's 
criticised in the report, and that is the first case of an actual independent process that the Labour Party set up, that there wasn't one before, for training for staff members and others about anti-Semitism. So those are some reasons to be sort of broadly, raise some questions here. My biggest question, though, my biggest problem here is the idea introduced in the report that questioning the scale of the problem of anti-Semitism might itself constitute harassment of Jewish people. And I think this is a tricky one because there are, of course, ways in which you could minimise or dismiss the existence of bigotry as a brutal, a quite cruel way to gaslight victims of that bigotry. But I think there are problems with the overuse of this idea. And I think it reflects our contemporary politics in two ways, right? One is the construction of monolithic communities. So I, as a Jew, am part of something called a British Jewish community. And that means that if someone says, actually, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's an anti-Semite, maybe they're harassing me, even though I also don't think he's an anti-Semite because I've been slotted without any choice of mine into this thing called the Jewish community. And it's been dictated to me how I feel. And that's very much part of a kind of new Labour anti-racism and multiculturalism that found unelected community leaders to speak for monolithic, homogenous communities. So that's one problem with this. The second problem is that it's part of a broader pathologising of politics. So political disagreements about, say, how much anti-Semitism there is in the Labour Party become a question of harassment, of hurt feelings. So you see in the prevent agenda that if you have particular kinds of views and you're a young Muslim in Britain... You're sick, you're unwell, you know, you might be a victim of radicalization, just like you could be a victim of a kind of mental health disease. And I should say, I think the left has played its part in this kind of emphasis on hurt feelings as a basis for politics, which I think is is quite damaging and destructive. And parts of the left have been part of that problem. So you now see a situation where when some of us question our ability to speak up in defence of Palestinians because we're told it might hurt the feelings of some Jews who identify strongly with the state of Israel. We're told sometimes, oh no, Palestinians can of course speak about their lived experience of Zionism as, a, as, as an oppressive force in their lives, but you can't because you don't have that personal experience. And I don't think this is a good basis for a politics of a kind of much more beautiful, universalist, anti-colonial solidarity. So I, I, I have lots of doubts about, uh, about the report, though I also think there are some very decent and important things in the report. And if people would actually read it, they might discover them. On the question of Jeremy Corbyn's response, so in his statement on the HRC report, which of course became the occasion for his suspension from the party, he stated that one anti-Semite is one too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. Do you think those comments regarding the weaponization of anti-Semitism by the opponents of the Labour left, do you think those comments were factually accurate? And if so, do you think it was wise to make those comments in his response to the report? Yes, is the answer to both of those questions. We have lots of evidence from YouGov polling, for example, from polling from the campaign against anti-Semitism, one of the bodies leading this campaign against the Labour Party. Their own polling suggests that anti-Semitic attitudes are a serious presence. The Institute for Jewish Policy Research suggests about 30% of people in Britain hold at least one anti-Semitic attitude, about 5% hold more than five anti-Semitic attitudes. They're a real presence in British society, and the evidence suggests that they're roughly evenly spread across the political spectrum, with, as you'd expect, the far right dramatically more anti-Semitic and the mainstream right slightly more anti-Semitic than the mainstream left. That is, of course, not the impression you'd get from recent news coverage. So it is clearly the case that if someone were to come along and say, as many have done, I think, there's virtually no anti-Semitism on the left, it's all manufactured, they would be out of line with the evidence. And if someone were to come along and say, and that's what, as I say, some people have said, and it's welcome that Jeremy Corbyn has, has said he doesn't, not only he disagrees with that, but he doesn't want people who think that to think of themselves as supporters of his. And equally, if someone were to come along and say, oh, yes, there is anti-Semitism in Britain and it's all on the left, that's also just out of line with the evidence. And I think the media coverage over recent years has therefore clearly been out of line with the evidence. So Corbyn's right to say what he said, factually. Then there's this question of, was it tactical? 
And I think it's worth really hitting this one on the head now, because I think, I think we've reached a kind of nadir here. Even after his defeat and sort of desolation and Keir Starmer kicking out from the shadow cabinet, you know, the only sort of Cor- one of the only Corbynites there, J- uh, Rebecca Long Bailey, and now suspending Jeremy Corbyn, you know, ev- even in this climate of sort of total destruction of the Corbyn project in which the new Labour leadership is whipping Labour MPs to vote in favour of the legalisation of potentially torture and rape with committed by British state agents, even in that climate of complete reversal for the politics of Jeremy Corbyn, we're told that we must be super tactical and nice and, and, and not say things even if they happen to be true because they might upset the new Labour leadership. This is a kind of apolitical imperative which assumes that your enemies will stop attacking you if you say what they claim to want you to say. We saw this in the IHRA debacle over Labour anti-Semitism. If only we give a little bit of ground then maybe they'll stop coming for us. That isn't something that any socialist should say because socialists should understand that where the forces of the state and the forces of the right attack you, where they seek an excuse to attack you, where the Daily Telegraph writes in its editorial that it wants to use anti-Semitism to drive out Corbynism from the Labour Party for good, you should understand that they're not going to stop and pat you on the back and be nice to you if you give them some ground. So I'm someone who's consistently argued that the left should be very, very serious about the presence of anti-Semitism, including within its own ranks. And I've always tried to be careful in arguing that, that I wasn't saying, and if we do this, then the right will stop attacking us. I thought we should do it for principled reasons. But I think it's deeply naive to suggest that active dishonesty in this case, pretending that there has been no exaggeration of anti-Semitism on the left at the cost of not stressing it at all, where it's a very real presence too on the right. Dishonesty about that here, we're told, would be tactically wise. I think that's really, as well as being morally bankrupt, just tactically and strategically silly. Just on the question of Keir Starmer's motives here, so I suppose there's perhaps a question of whether this move to suspend Jeremy Corbyn, which ostensibly is coming from the General Secretary of the, of the Labour Party, but many are pointing, of course, to, to Keir Starmer's hand in this. Is it your sense that this is the first move in, in, in a broader project to drive opponents of the Labour leadership out of the party? Or do you think it may be there's a path dependency here that the positions that Keir Starmer had previously took recently, we saw him upbraiding Stephen Kinnock uh, over the question of, of Israeli settlements, whether he sort of painted himself into a corner and he's in a position really where to be consistent with the line he's taken up to now, it was sort of inevitable that he was, he was going to do this. No, I think that social democracy has, since the turn of the 20th century, found itself faced by a fundamental choice, which is, does it understand itself as a project to better govern the apparatuses of the state in the interests of funneling a bit more wealth towards the poorest, towards previously its traditional, say, proletarian constituency? Or, by contrast, does it understand itself as a much more transformative project, seeking to dismantle those state apparatuses, including their foreign, you know, colonial implications, in order to not just give people a bit more money for a national health service, but uh, free people, a much more ambitious aspiration to end the forms of domination involved in capitalist society? That's been a deep tension in social democratic politics, which has meant that mainstream moderate social democrats have since the turn of the 20th century sought aggressively to distance themselves from those people who were enemies of the state apparatus, who were the real, the real radicals, and to show that they could be trusted administrators of those state apparatuses in the interests perhaps of their workers and not of their bosses, but not representing fundamental transformation of that apparatus. You might question the possibility of governing the existing apparatus in, in, in those interests. But so Starmer's bid to show himself loyal to the structures of the British state, which I think means both drumming out the 
left explicitly like this and also not opposing Tory legislation to allow MI5 to torture people, perhaps, and, you know, not opposing legislation to decriminalise torture from soldiers. All of these steps, I think, are attempts to make clear that the Labour Party is not a challenge to the state. And as such, they're of a piece with a long history of social democracy. So I, I regard this as a, as a very unsurprising strategy from a moderate Labour leadership. I don't think Starmer's sort of being stuck into a corner here. I think this is a perfectly sensible thing from his, from his perspective. A sort of retread of the Neil Kinnock project. Exactly. And, and one of the deeply damaging things about this is that they are willing to use anti-Semitism as their cudgel with which to prosecute that war. So Andrew Adonis, the Blairite member of the House of Lords, tells us that Starmer should have his Kinnock moment and drive out the militant tendency using anti-Semitism to do it. And the reason that's so offensive to me is that anti-Semitism is actually on the rise. It is actually a real thing. It's not just something you can play around with. It's not just something you can use to fight your own factional political battles. You should, if you are a decent human being, stop and ask what the cost might be for Jews if you turn anti-Semitism into a political football. You know, if they want to have their factional fight, I'd rather they keep me out of it as a Jew, just by virtue of my Jewishness, and not use me to for their political point scoring. But that is, I think, unfortunately, what's happening here. And I would be less bothered by that in a way if I didn't think that anti-Semitism was actually a really serious issue right now. And so it's very dangerous to be using it in that way. Coming on to the, the rise of anti-Semitism, what do we actually know about the scale of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party? And, and is it correct to say that anti-Semitism increased under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership? And if it did, do you think that increase is at all attributable to the left's leadership of the party? Or, or would any such increase be in line with broader trends within British society and the other main political parties? I think the increase in anti-Semitism is a general social phenomenon. I don't think it's reducible to any particular political party leader. The limited evidence that we have actually suggests a slight fall in anti-Semitic attitudes in the Labour Party in the years immediately following Jeremy Corbyn's election to the leadership, but it's not very extensive survey evidence. The broader evidence, as I mentioned before, is that about 30% of people in Britain hold at least one anti-Semitic view. That's from the Institute for Jewish Policy Research a few years ago. Bear in mind, 30% of people in Britain is more than it normally takes to elect a government. So, you know, we're not talking about insignificant numbers. That's just holding one anti-Semitic view, that about 5% hold a sort of suite of multiple anti-Semitic views. That puts anti-Semitism as a real presence in British society that is less dramatic, significantly less dramatic than, say, Islamophobia. Islamophobic attitudes are much more common. I think there are two reasons to distrust these polls somewhat. One is the question of how honest people are when they're sitting in their living room and someone calls them up and says, do you think Islam is a threat to Britain's way of life? And then says, do you think Jews go on about the Holocaust too much? And I think that the post-Holocaust social unacceptability of anti-Semitism is such that I suspect it's likely that the reality of anti-Semitic attitudes is higher than people are willing to admit to pollsters, perhaps more so than with other prejudices that are less socially unacceptable in broad swathes of Britain. And the second thing I'd say about the polls is that these sorts of surveys tend to tell us only what attitudes people have and not how important those attitudes are to people. So I might both believe that I want to lose weight and also believe that a cabal of Jews runs the world. And if I focus a lot on that first thing and not at all on the second thing, then I might not do much harm. I might just diet and go to the gym. But if I focus a lot on that second thing, the belief that Jews run the world, I might do a lot of damage. So the surveys from the, the Pew Global Research Surveys, for example, suggest that anti-Semitic attitudes around the world are roughly constant over the last few years. 
And yet, incidents of anti-Semitic violence and harassment have steadily increased since the 1990s. So I think what we're facing is not just an increase of general anti-Semitic attitudes, but a kind of coming together where, for various reasons to do with things that have happened in the world, especially since 2008, financial crisis, people reach for and prioritise in their own minds forms of politics that could potentially include anti-Semitism. And I have an account of why I think that's the case, which has nothing at all in common with the kind of dominant account that we're seeing in Britain, in which this is a kind of floor of left-wing thinking. I don't think it's that at all. I'll come back to your particular understanding of, of anti-Semitism in the, in the current moment. But before we do, so in a recent blog post, Richard Seymour, who, whose work I, I know you're very familiar with, he suggests that the, that the relative competitiveness of Jeremy Corbyn's response to the HRC, where he pointed to the way in which the media and opponents within the party as well had, had, had weaponized anti-Semitism in, in the rather cynical way in which, which you described, was the kind of tone we should have actually seen more of during his time as leader of, of the Labour Party. Do you think that over the whole period of, of Corbyn's leadership that the Labour left were too defensive and, and too inclined to act as if media critics were all acting in, in good faith? Well, I think that there is a kind of wishful thinking here where people tend to assume that if only their strategy had been followed, a global moral panic about anti-Semitism as a feature, a bug of left-wing politics, which began in the mid-2000s in France, where it was targeted at young people in the banlieue and has now spread to the United States and to Britain, that that global moral panic could somehow be defeated if only the leader's office had taken slightly different decisions. I think they tried at points to be quite combative, actually. They tried at points to be to sort of bend over themselves and apologize and and I think unfortunately that they weren't going to defeat this campaign and then it's, it's wishful thinking to think they were going to defeat this campaign while remaining true to left-wing politics whatever they did I do think though that aspects of their response were extremely damaging and I argued against these at the time especially the adoption of the IHRA definition with all its examples crucially of anti-semitism in which because here the issue was not whether you thought anti-Semitism was rising, whether you thought it was real, or even how widespread you thought it was among Labour members. The issue here was how you characterised what anti-Semitism was. And we need a left-wing anti-racist account of why rising anti-Semitism is a real phenomenon in the world. The dominant account we have of anti-Semitism today comes from the right. It's this theory of the new anti-Semitism, which associates it with the wretched of the earth, Muslims, Palestinians, the left, people taking on entrenched power as all being suspect and potentially anti-Semitic. And the IHRA definition which effectively criminalises trenchant anti-Zionism, gives into that right-wing presentation of anti-Semitism. And that, I think, was a deeply, deeply mistaken thing for the Labour leadership to do. They did it under great pressure and they resisted it for a while. But, you know, it's a definition that is itself potentially racist because it tells Palestinians that they're not allowed to object to the racism of the state that ethnically cleansed them in 1948. It says they're not allowed to call the existence of a state of Israel a racist endeavour. So it sets up a hierarchy of racisms. It pits Jews against Palestinians in a pretty nasty way. And it also risks glamorising anti-Semitism because by associating anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism, it, it risks making it seem like a much more palatable thing than it really is. So I think that the leadership's errors were not really about how combative and aggressive they were in their press statements in talking about the media campaign, but were much more in the political choices they made to allow and accept a framing of anti-Semitism from the right that, through the IHRA definition, which they only did under great pressure and they tried to resist, but which effectively criminalised a lot of solidarity with Palestine. 
Another narrative that the Labour leadership also seemed to to accept was this notion of the Labour Party as a long-standing champion of, of anti-racist causes, which obviously then feeds into the notion that the issue of, of anti-Semitism is, is sort of the first occurrence of, of racism within the Labour Party. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, this is one of the things that I find most distressing. My first political experience was as a child volunteering at my synagogue's drop-in centre for destitute asylum seekers. So these were people who had come to Britain seeking refuge and were homeless. And they had been rendered homeless by a deliberate decision, calculated decision of the Blair government, a British Labour government, which removed from them the right to work while their asylum cases were being heard, which often, because of home office incompetence or callousness, takes years. So even Thatcher had allowed asylum seekers to work while they were waiting to hear about their cases. Blair removed that right in order to prove to the right-wing press that he could be really, really brutal on the dark and the foreign. And I met, I was only a kid myself when I was volunteering at the centre, and I met a kid, I remember saying, what do you want most in the world? And he said, a bed. You know, he had been put in that position by the racism of a Labour government. I I grew up under New Labour, and I hate the kind of Brexit-era presentation of this cosmopolitan moment in British politics before the coming of Brexit. New Labour was a, not just neoliberal uh, apparatus, as is common to say now, it was a violently racist organisation that depicted Muslims day in, day out as a fifth column in British society. Muslim kids were told by government ministers that they should, by John Reid, that they should spy on their parents. You know, David Blunkett castigated lefty lawyers supporting bogus asylum seekers. I mean, all of the nastiness of the kind of right-wing racist playbook you got from successive Labour Home Secretaries in castigating migrants and Muslims especially as the two kind of favourite groups for the racism of of New Labour. So the idea that, you know, I also find it ironic that Alastair Campbell now claims to be one of the chief disgusted elements by Corbynite anti-Semitism when he authored anti-Semitic poster campaigns against Michael Howard and Oliver Letwin that the Labour Party sent around the country depicting them as Shylock and Fagin and flying pigs. And he didn't really seem to mind that much about it then. So definitely in my lifetime, the Labour Party has not been an anti-racist organisation. It's been central to the apparatus of British racism. And that goes back much longer. You know, the Attlee Labour government, which interned Jewish Holocaust refugees in concentration camps on Cyprus, also carried out atrocities in South Asia. You know, there's a long, and also, by the way, in Labour Party conferences in the 1940s, passed resolutions effectively calling for the ethnic cleansing, the population transfer of the Palestinian people. So the Labour Party has always had, Tony Benn used to say, there have always been socialists in the Labour Party, just like there have always been Christians in the church. They're a small minority, but they're there. The same is true of anti-racists in the Labour Party. There have been Jeremy Corbyn, I think, has been one of them. Diane Abbott certainly has been one of them. There have been anti-racists in the Labour Party on its radical left flank. But most of the Labour Party, as part of that social democratic dynamic I was discussing of seeking to prove that they're legitimate guardians of the British state and not radical challengers to the very integrity of those apparatuses of the state, part of showing that fidelity to the state has been showing the fidelity to the racism that is central to the British state. So the Labour Party has not been an anti-racist party. That's just not true. Does that also raise questions about the entire left project of trying to repurpose the Labour Party for more radical ends? Because what sort of coalition can be built within the party between the the, the different sectors of it if it's necessary for people to repudiate? And I think my own view would be that it's right to do so, but to repudiate the legacy of of New Labour and other instances of the factions within the Labour Party that that have pursued a, a racist agenda? Well, I don't think we just have to repudiate the legacy of New Labour. I mean, uh, you know, this might seem uh, sort of nasty and sectarian of me, but I think that the British left ought to have a much more critical attitude to the history of British social democracy, including Callaghan and Howard Wilson and uh, even the, you know, saintly Clement Attlee. 
Um, uh, I mean, th that's sort of what I mean. Like, you, you know, it, how plausible is it that people on the centre or even the soft left of the Labour Party are going to give up their attachment to this fantasy that they have about the Labour Party? I don't know how plausible it is, but I think that it's certainly right that any project for socialist advance in Britain that relies on the idea of happy unity with people on the right of social democracy is a project that's going to run into trouble. And that's historically been the case in Britain. It is rather the case that we need to forge a socialist pole of attraction that repudiates entirely the politics of, say, having a soft spot for histories or present realities of colonialism and imperialism. You know, we need to repudiate that politics completely. For me, that would mean a politics that's very critical of Britain's membership of NATO, very critical of Britain's, until recently, membership of the European Union on genuinely internationalist grounds about the role the EU serves as a neocolonial apparatus around the world and in drowning refugees, for example. So, you know, I want a socialist pole of attraction, not one that, that relies on accommodation with people well to the right of what I would regard as genuine internationalist anti-racism. Whether that pole of attraction is developed within the Labour Party or outside it is just a contingent historical question. We know that there are very, very grave difficulties in developing it inside the Labour Party because it's a party bureaucratically and historically dominated by its right flank and seriously committed to an ideology, what Ralph Miliband used to call Labourism, which isn't just about socialism, but is about fidelity to the British state. But we've also seen the grave difficulty of trying to develop that project outside the Labour Party. So, you know, I joined the Labour Party briefly under Corbyn because I was enthused by him. I'm not currently a member of the Labour Party. I don't have any kind of dogmatic attachment either way to the idea of being in or outside it. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.